Hello, welcome to Carmelite Conversations. This is Frances Harry. Our topic for today is silence, the language of God. My guest, Deacon Rusty Baldwin, a secular order discussed Carmelite from Dayton, Ohio, um, is going to speak on this topic. And so I'm just going to introduce him. You know, when we are praying, we're pretty wordy, right? I mean, we think of the formal prayers that we pray, the Our Fathers, the Hail Marys, the Rosaries, the Litanies, the Novenas. Um, even when we do Lexio Divina, there's a lot of mental gymnastics going on, right? Uh, we might be doing praise and thanksgiving. We might be singing, but there's a lot of words going on, right? So what does silence have to do with prayer? And why is it that silence is the language of God? And I'm going to let Deacon Baldwin explain that to you. Um, he's going to help us understand that. And then he's going to talk about our role in prayer and our purpose in prayer and even using examples from Jesus's life to help us out. Um, he's going to compare and contrast the physical senses and the spiritual senses in prayer. And then finally, he's going to uh, talk about the 12 degrees of silence, uh, which I highly recommend that everybody get the book that, that he mentions um, by um, Marie Amy. And um, it's again, the 12 degrees of silence. And I think that there will be a lot of gems in this conversation for you to ponder and to help improve your own prayer life and to um, grow deeper into this union with God and to revel in the silence. First, I'd like to thank Jim for inviting me here to do this presentation on silence, the language of God. And to thank you all for being here. You know, Jim first reached out to Tim Beat, a member of our Carmelite community and at uh, Our Mother of Good Counsel. And he told, uh, and Tim then reached out to Deacon Danis and I, and he reminded us, he said, gentlemen, whenever Carmelites are invited to do a talk about prayer, we immediately set down our beer and we go. Which, only goes to show that uh, Carmelites are Catholics too. But as Carmelites, prayer is a topic that is especially near and dear to our hearts. But the fact is prayer is a topic that should be near and dear to all Christians. Not that all are called to be contemplatives like Carmelites, but all Christians are called to pray. And that's why it's such a joy to see you all here. Now, I'm going to ease into the topic of the language of God via a rhetorical question. If you had to name some of the extraordinary things about Jesus while he was here on earth, what would they be? Our Lord healing with a mere touch? How an entire village would come to a house that Jesus was staying at and try to fit in the house with all these people to hear him speak? How Jesus healed all those brought to him, no matter what the disease. How he taught with such authority and drove out demons. He commanded the wind and the waves and they obeyed him. All these and many, many other things about our Lord. The multiplication of the loaves and fishes. All these types of things. 
are certainly extraordinary and miraculous, but in one sense, they're to be expected. Our Lord, being the second divine person of the most holy trinity, you might expect to be able to do miracles. But I, that's why I don't think these things are the most extraordinary thing about Jesus. I think the most extraordinary thing about our Lord's life was how prayer was such an integral and essential part of it. In my view, it's extraordinary that the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, God incarnate, did miracles? No. That's wonderful. What's extraordinary is how the Son of God, God incarnate, and the second divine person of the Holy Trinity took the time to pray. He could heal with a touch, cure illness with a word, command the wind and the waves, and yet it seemed he could never spend enough time in prayer. Equally extraordinary, in contrast, is how this compares to most Christians' prayer lives. By that I mean we all at times just don't seem to be able to pray. We don't feel anything, we sometimes say. Now, actually, as a quick aside, saints tell us that this may be a sign that we're actually making progress in our journey toward holiness, that God is testing us to see whether we really want to spend time with him or whether we just enjoy the feeling we get when we spend time with him. You know, there are some people who just really love to be in love. Did you ever run into that in junior high or high school or maybe even later? They just love to be in love. They didn't particularly care who they were in love with. They just love the feeling of being in love. And sometimes that's what God is testing us, is doing to test us, to see whether we want to be with him or whether we love the feeling when we're spending time with him. In any case, those same saints assure us that the worst thing we can do when we don't feel like praying is not to pray. And it's paradoxical, but nevertheless true. The less time we feel we have to pray, the more things get in the way to prevent us from praying, the more we need to take that time to pray. And think about it. No one had a more important task than our Lord. No one had more important things to accomplish each and every day than Jesus did. But he always took the time to pray. Father Bartunik of the Legionaries of Christ put it this way, quote, If Christ, who was perfect, needed prayer to fulfill his life's mission, what does that say for you and I who are so imperfect, so weak, so vulnerable to every kind of temptation and wounded by sin? Christ was a man of prayer and told us himself, no disciple is greater than his master, unquote. But even if we regularly take the opportunity to pray, if we're not careful, prayer can inadvertently become a kind of a rote exercise, like something we do before meals or bedtime. And sadly, 
Even the wonderful traditional prayers like the Our Father and the Rosary can become routine. Even more regrettable, even the Mass, the greatest prayer we know, can also become routine. Now, I want to make sure you don't understand me. Praying prayers we all know, like the Our Father, the Rosary, and other beautiful Catholic devotions is a wonderful practice, and I'm in no way discouraging it. On the contrary, these prayers and devotions are a gift from our Lord, Our Lady, and the saints. And I hope you, as I do, pray novenas, the Rosary, and the, our, our Father every single day. Prayed well, they're akin to love poems that we dedicate to God. But we also need to listen to God. And the desire, the yearning to be ever closer to God, to hear his voice, is not all at all uncommon. And spiritually, this yearning is a very, very good sign. In fact, this desire to hear God more clearly, to speak with him as we speak with one another, is not a desire that only Christians have. It's a primordial desire that every member of the human race has. It's the way God made it. We are restless until we rest in thee, St. Augustine said. God made us to be in communion with him. And while some suppress this desire almost to the point of eliminating it, it remains, however small, nonetheless. But God doesn't normally speak to us as we speak to one another. God said through the prophet Isaiah, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. So I'd like to consider prayer in a way that reflects the intimacy we desire with God and He with us. I'd like to consider prayer in a nuptial or a marital context. And prayer is, especially as we move into contemplative prayer, much more like spouses wooing each other, inviting each other to ever greater intimacy than any other image or analogy we might think of. In fact, this is the primary image of God and Israel in the Old Testament and our Lord and the Church. In the New Testament, the image of the lover and his beloved, the divine bridegroom wooing his bride. But this kind of intimacy requires that we come to understand our role in this relationship and the language of God. Our role is that of the beloved, but that doesn't mean we're passive. We're not just some lump, lump on a log. Blech. Okay, God, love me. No, not passive, but rather receptive. We actively, if you will, dispose ourselves to receive and accept his love. And while God does indeed speak to us in many and varied ways, God's primary love language, if you will, is silence. And the way we become receptive is the way we is, the, is by emptying ourselves of ourselves, if you will. That way we can be that empty vessel that God can fill with his love and grace.
So even though we're receptive, again, we're not passive. Very important distinction. And we can prepare ourselves for this receptivity, but it's only by God's grace that our emptiness, if you will, is filled. But we have the consolation that he longs to fill us. It's kind of like how nature abhors a vacuum. God is drawn to, is captivated, if you will, by humility. By when we empty ourselves of ourselves, he longs to fill us with himself. Now, this might be best illustrated via contrast. So let's take this nuptial or marital image and contrast it with something that it's not, if you will. How not to do what I'll be calling from now on this wooing. Let's suppose you want to have some more quality time with your spouse. Well, as a quick aside, first off, I think the whole notion of quality time in isolation from time itself is a myth. By that, I mean so-called quality time with anyone flows from, results from spending time with them. You can't schedule it, force it, or demand it. Again, you can prepare or dispose yourself into, or dispose yourself rather, to enter into or experience quality time, but it doesn't happen on a schedule. That's where the wooing part comes in. And wooing is not something we can do by checklist, if you will. So imagine that you're uh, wanting some quality time with your spouse and you come up to, and I'll use my wife as an example. I come up to my wife and I say, okay, honey, here you are. I've got a huge box of chocolates, as you can see here. Notice the heart in the, the shape of the box. A 15-pound box, honey, that's how much I love you. And I've got not one dozen, but two dozen red roses. And there's a card here with a sentiment so touching that it would bring a tear to the stoniest of hearts. This is for you. And finally, you might have noticed, I'm wearing your favorite aftershave. Got your chocolates? Check. Got the roses? Check. Got a card for you? Check. And got the aftershave? Check. Okay, honey. All systems are go. It's time for some romance. What kind of response do you think that would elicit? Probably more of a yuck than anything else. You see, this checklist, this hey, I'm going to do all these things, then we'll be intimate, doesn't work that way with our spouses. And it doesn't work that way with God either. And furthermore, the selfishness and self-centered of this, self-centeredness of this is manifest. Now, a little bit less brash, but still very me-oriented, is an example of where we excuse ourselves from time with our spouse when we're not getting anything out of it, as we so often say when it comes to prayer. Now imagine 
Again, you're at an intimate dinner with your spouse. You've got the beautifully set table, the wonderful food, the candlelights, the music, and you're holding your wife's hand across the table, looking into her eyes and saying, isn't this wonderful? But what does she say? Honey, I'm, I'm just not getting anything out of this right now. I'm, I'm sorry. I'll, I'm going to go watch some TV and maybe we can try this again tomorrow. How would that make you feel? But isn't it the case that we so often treat God that way? We come into his presence and then say, I'm sorry, God. I'm just not getting anything out of this. I'll come back later. That's not wooing. That's not loving. That's more akin to some impersonal, sterile execution of a strategic plan to try and achieve an objective. And if the plan doesn't work, well, back to the drawing board. Our spouse, our beloved, is not an objective to be accomplished. It's not some something to be conquered. It's someone we're trying to spend time with and establish a relationship with and become intimate with. And so too in contemplation, we're not praying to achieve some objective or to manipulate. We're waiting on the Lord for in a very, very real way to consummate the vows we made to each other, to renew that covenant of love we have with our beloved. According to St. Teresa of Avila, contemplation means, quote, taking the time frequently to be alone with him who we know loves us. And according to another St. Teresa, St. Teresa of Calcutta, the essential thing is not what we say, but what God says to us and through us. In silence, he will listen to us and there he will speak to our soul and there we will hear his voice. Our Lord himself gives us the most compelling example and argument for this. Where did our Lord go to pray? To the mountain, to the desert, to isolated and quiet places. He told us to go into our inner room. And when did Jesus pray? When the need to spend time with God was most urgent or grave. Our Lord prayed in the middle of the night or in the early hours of the morning, the quietest time possible. He often spent all night in prayer. And even more than that, he sacrificed all other aspects of his ministry to do so. Neither healing, teaching, nor all the many other facets of his ministry here on earth took priority over his time with God the Father. Jesus has indeed left us an example to follow. But this immediately raises several issues, doesn't it? Not the least of which is we live in a very noisy world, a, a noisy world that's getting even louder. Our world is determined, as we all know, of experience to fill our minds with images, sounds, and distractions that 
occupy our every waking moment. Now, a superficial assessment of this characteristic of our age might conclude that there are commercial, technological, political, and ideological forces running amok here. And I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. There are, they are, rather, all trying to outshout each other for their own ends, whether that's power, money, or manipulating us. No one can deny this is going on. But I think there's some more insidious and malevolent force at work. One that simultaneously hates and is terrified by silence. One that wants to keep us from silence because Satan knows, as we do, that in silence we meet God. In silence we encounter God. And Satan wants to keep us from that at all costs. But as I alluded to before, the truth is even more profound than that, even more sublime than silence being where we meet God, because we don't just meet God in silence, but rather silence is the language of God. Silence is the language of God. You see, authentic silence, true silence isn't an absence, it isn't the absence of something, it's the divine presence. It's the presence of someone. Before creation, from all eternity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit communed in silence. And to us, God has spoken but a single word, the word incarnate, his only begotten Son, so if you think about it, what else then is there for him to say that he has not said in our Lord? What else could God the Father tell us that he hasn't said in Jesus? Philip, Philip, have I been with you all this time and still you do not know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so, as many mystics have told us, henceforth, it is in silence that God speaks to us. But this seems utterly fantastic, does it not? The Father General of the Carthusian Order, an order of contemplative monks who spend their entire lives in silence, Dismas de la Seuss has said, quote, Everything in our relationship with God is a paradox. The realities that are opposed in man are combined in him. Presence and absence overlap. Voiceless speech or silent communication, these expressions underscore the ever-mysterious reality of the encounter with God. How could it be otherwise? When the infinite meets the finite, the meeting does not fit into our usual frameworks." Unquote. So, when you and I think God is ignoring us, when we think he is far away, it is then that he is actually closest to us. He speaks to us most especially when we are in pain, in our sickness, in our hurts, trials, and tribulations. But the language he speaks to us 
is in silence. And we see this very paradox in the incarnation of God, in our Lord, in that one word the Father spoke. When our Lord came to earth and we could see him with our eyes, his divinity was hidden, veiled by his humanity. And this is true generally. When God manifests himself to our senses, his divinity is veiled, not absent, but hidden, obscured, if you will. We experience this most, most profoundly in the most holy Eucharist. We see with our eyes bread and wine, but veiled beneath these appearances is God himself. And this is true in all the other sacraments as well. Robert Cardinal Seurat, when he was the prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments, explained it this way. Quote, if we observe the great works, the most powerful acts, the most extraordinary and striking interior transformations that God carries out in man, we are forced to admit that he works in silence. Baptism brings about a marvelous creation in the soul of the infant or adult who receives the sacrament. We hear the words of the priest. We see the water flow on the infant's forehead, yet we perceive nothing of this immersion into the inner life of the Trinity, grace and creation, which requires nothing less than the personal almighty action of God. God has uttered his word in the soul in silence. In that same silent darkness, the subsequent developments of grace generally come, unquote. Do you see what follows from the Cardinal's observations? It is when our senses are not operative, when our senses are deprived, if you will, of their proper natural material objects. It is when we enter into silence that the veil lifts so that our spiritual senses can be operative. Our ability to see with our eyes of faith, to hear the voice of God, to feel the gentle touch of his grace. Not exteriorly, but interiorly. But these spiritual senses of ours only operate in silence. That's their proper medium, if you will. Just like we need light to see. We need air vibrating to hear. That's their proper material medium. Our spiritual medium is silence. And in this, exterior silence is helpful when we pray, yes. But the most essential aspect of prayer is an interior silence of our spirit that speaks the language of God. And even here, the Carmelite mystics St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross teach us that in what they call the dark night of the spirit, God's silence can be so profound so as not to be perceived even by our spiritual senses. Even so, he's there. He's with us, though we do not perceive him. Okay, so this is all been pretty heavy and deep so far. So let's switch gears a little bit and get a little bit more practical. 
But first, to kind of facilitate that switch, uh, let's have some humor. All right. In academic circles, there are many, many well-known jokes about people with PhDs. And their humor lies in the fact that so very often what they're poking fun at is actually quite close to the truth. Now, one of my favorite PhD jokes is this. A PhD is someone who knows more and more about less and less until they know everything there is to know about nothing. Now, there's a curious similarity between PhDs and contemplatives. And in fact, with only a very slight change in the wording of this joke, a vital truth about contemplatives and contemplation becomes evident. Here's what I mean. A contemplative is someone who prays more and more, but says less and less until all they have to say when they pray is nothing. A contemplative is someone who prays more and more, but says less and less until all they have to say when they pray is nothing. Now this characteristic of contemplatives and contemplation is attested to by St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, and all the Carmelite saints as well. The deeper we enter into prayer, the less we say. And while this is undoubtedly true, this outward silence is but an exterior manifestation of an interior transformation taking place within our soul by the grace of God. Our soul, we know not how, is growing ever more proficient during this transformative process in speaking the very language of God, the language of silence. So does this mean that vocal prayers, Lectio Divina, and other forms of meditation all eventually fall by the wayside? Is that it? Is that what I'm saying? No. Many of the beautiful devotions we practice, like meditating on the life of our Lord, our Lady, or the saints, and the prayers like the Rosary, the Stations of the Cross, the Novena, are all form, are forms of vocal prayer, Lectio Divina, or meditation. Contemplation does not mean these go by the wayside. No, these are the seeds of contemplation. Contemplation are these forms of prayer come to fruition. Remember the parable Jesus told? The kingdom of God is like a man scattering seed on the ground. The man sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows he knows not how. When the grain is ripe, he wields the sickle at once, for the harvest is come. Just so, in the same way, by the grace of God, we enter into contemplation we know not how. Now, does a farmer plant seed only once? Once the harvest is in, does he ever sow seed again? Of course he does. But with experience, the farmer learns how, where, and in what quantity to sow the seed so as to yield the richest harvest. The soil we can think of as our lives, tilled and prepared and fertilized by our Sorrows, joys, hopes, and fears, tilled and prepared by practicing the virtues, so that by the grace of God, 
The yield is 30, 60, or even 100-fold. You see, contemplation involves a gradual turning away from ourselves and a turning to God. Contemplation culminates in a complete and total turning to God with nothing held back. Now imagine facing God in this way, beholding his glory and beatitude. What would you say to him? I dare say you wouldn't utter a single word. But even so, you would be in deep communion with God, united to him and enveloped in his loving embrace, speaking to him, yes, but in the divine language of love, which is silence, the language of the most holy trinity. I'd like to recommend a book that describes how we can turn away from ourselves and turn to God, thereby learning the language of God, the language of love, learning to speak as he does in silence. It's called The Twelve Degrees of Silence, written by a French discalced Carmelite nun named Marie-Amy de Jesus. It's a very short work, but one well worth getting and reading. And in the first of the 12 degrees of silence, or actually throughout all the 12 degrees of silence, we see this gradual moving from the exterior silence down to silence within the very depths of our soul. And in degrees one through three, she teaches us how to be silent in our words, actions, and imagination. And this prepares us to become the silent servants of divine love, as Marie Amy puts it. But God doesn't want us to stay servants. And so as we move deeper into degrees four through six, which is where we silence our memories, we're silent with respect to others and within our own heart, we hear, she says, the first note of the sacred song, the song of the heavens. These are the first notes of the love song of the divine bridegroom, where he's wooing us to enter into that intimacy with him. And where our receptivity that we've so prepared for comes to fruition. He fills us with himself. This is the beginning of that. In degrees seven through nine, we are silent with respect to our own self-interest, to our mind and to judgments. And in this, we achieve a perfect, simple purity, a blessed childhood, as Marie Amy puts it. And as we all know, Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. In the final degrees, degrees 10 through 12, we experience silence with respect to our will, with respect to ourselves, and even with respect to God.
And this final degree, silence with God, is where we no longer even speak to God, if you will, or more accurately, since we've learned to speak God's language of silence, we can now participate in the communion of love shared by the very persons of the Most Holy Trinity, finally united to Him, with Him, and in Him, precisely where we and He longed for us to be. God speaks, but the language He speaks is silence. And it is in our inner room where we commune with him. If we persevere then in prayer and contemplation, we will attune and dispose our hearts to him. And that is where our beloved waits for us and longs for us to join him. So let's go to him. Thank you.